0: The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Ivo, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, I always like when the presentation starts with excitement, like not having the graphs and tables and charts I prepared. <laughs> so we'll <laughs> try to take it. Uh, uh, more freely, and maybe maybe later on we will return to some of the some of the charts and, and visualizations I wanted to show you. So, as Eva said when talking about the Central and Eastern Europe, you either hear something about the experience of transition which was happening in, at the beginning of uh, uh, '90s or after the 1989. Right now, the countries are again in the focus on, of scholarship because of the reversal of the, of the transitions. We have constitutional crises happening in. Most of the countries in the Central and Eastern Europe actually, you definitely heard about Hungary and Poland, but something is happening in Romania, you would be able to talk about uh, Bulgaria, so there is a lot of commotion. Slovakia right now is filling the uh, newspapers as well. Uh, and my question when I was thinking about the topic is what to do about it, right? Like, European Union, for example, is trying uh, to become one of the actors in, uh, in the foreign policy, in the democratization policies. The problem for the EU is also that it's trying to enlarge itself to, to admit new countries which, are, which want to be perceived as democracies. But this is a little bit difficult if the members inside of the EU uh, have some problems with the, with the level of the democracy. So then the EU is actually uh, viewed as having double standards against its own members and the candidate countries. So my question was what the EU, what individual institutions and actors can do about this. And I'll be talking about four uh, cases of constitutional crisis, of crisis of the rule of law happening inside of the EU, uh, and the four cases in which actually Article 7, which is the harshest sanction mechanism EU actually has against the backsliding of the democracy, uh, in which this article was considered. There are several, so so maybe to start very very briefly and I will get to it in more detail, there are several political and legal measures individual uh, institutions can actually use to tackle certain topics of uh, democratic backsliding. The question is whether these actors and these institutions use the topics. Scholarships so far developed several hypotheses how the institutions will be behaving. For example, there is some assumption that the European Parliament will be reacting reacting mostly uh, according to certain partisan uh, loyalties, that generally huge European Parliament parties won't go and won't vote actually against the governments which are composed of the parties which are members of the particular EP uh, EP parties. Then uh, European Commission as the institution somehow devoted to the process of uh, uh, European integration will be mostly acting as the guardian of the treaties and will be probably harshest in terms of protecting the shared values values of the EU. And then the member states within the councils will be reacting based on their national policies, whether these actually fit their national national, uh, interest or not. The problem is that the scholarship so far didn't test this hypothesis on the empirical data we have and we have a lot of data right now, thanks to what's happening in Hungary and Poland. So let's look into that. Um, first of all, I would probably like to mention that uh, the values we have in the European Union. For, the, for those of you who do not know that much about the European Union, so we have the founding treaties which attempt to create something as the constitution of the Europe. It's not the constitution in the legal term, but they actually, uh, they provide for certain structure for the interactions between the actors. We have also the charter of the fundamental rights of the European Union. And there is also a a provision in article two of the treaty of uh, European Union, which says that all member countries all member states of the EU had to uh, provide for or adhere to certain values, values of democracy, of the rule of law, and fundamental rights. This article in connection with another article of the treaty says that only country which actually sticks with these three values can enter the European Union later on. And uh, this line, actually forcing candidate countries to to, uh, protect these three values, rule of law, democracy, fundamental rights, is working quite well thanks to the the, uh, accession conditionality. The question then is what is happening with this article once the country is inside of the EU. The article, or the values as such, were not always present in the primary law, in the founding treaties. Um, And as is usually easy in in values, they are somehow embedded in social processes, in interaction of the actors. And these fundamental values of the EU were created uh, via the integration process. So the very first time you would actually read something about the member states having to be democratic, uh, was the integration of uh, Iberian states and Greece. Uh, so uh, actually, the entry of, the, of the Spain was the very, very first instance when the then new European Parliament was pushing for actually having this condition that only a democratic country can enter. This happened because the European Parliament, the parties there were somehow allied with uh, anti Frankist uh, national political parties which tried to actually secure uh, that the country will not get back to, to non democratic practices. Uh, So that's how very, very slowly some of the values mentioning the conditions, how the political regimes, how the member states uh, should be inside of the EU, actually got into the uh, primary law. Then we had several, several resolutions and declarations of the institutions. And finally with Maastricht Treaty in the beginning of the 90s, with this uh, awaiting enlargement of the EU of of, uh, Central and Eastern European countries, Finally, we got it into the founding treaties and the law. Um, With having articles and provisions saying that member states should stick to certain values, obviously, institutions started to think quite quickly how to sanction the states if they would not stick to the values, right? And uh, again, one of the processes which somehow pushed the EU into uh, codifying this into the primary law was the eastern enlargement. And it is said that now we have Article 7, which has some mechanism how to actually punish states if they do not, uh, uh, if, if they if they uh, violate some of the democratic values. So the article was introduced as again as somehow some preemptive measure against Eastern European countries. The funny thing is that in the end, the very first country against which the Article 7 was considered, the Article 7 says that if the country. Uh, uh, is not protecting fundamental rights, democracy, rule of law, then the institutions can, as as a form of sanction, uh, they they can withhold some of the uh, some of the voting rights. They can actually uh, put into practice some financial sanctions, or even the membership of the country can be, um, let's say, stopped for a certain period of time. But the very first instance when the article was raised, or it was somehow, it was. Uh, the institutions talked about possibility to use the article was the case of Austria in 2000 when uh, Haider was elected as uh, one, uh, well his party uh, ended up being second in the parliamentary election and he created a coalition uh, in the government. But I just wanted to say that the process through which these values got into the primary law uh, was the enlargement process and the, the, the the interaction of institutions with countries which were at that time outside of the EU. Uh, and obviously this uh, uh, drew attention of, of many many academics and scholars and they started to talk about the European Union as the democratization power and different forces, different different measures, different uh, levels in which the EU can be successful in pushing forward the democratic changes. Now is exactly the time that I could make a use of the of one of the slides, but I will try just to explain it. The problem with the EU enforcing these uh, democratic values or values of democracy, rule of law and uh, fundamental rights, all, although it is codified in the primary law, is that, and those of you who know a little bit of the European Union law might know it, um, The problem is that the institutions have power to enforce it only if the member states are applying EU law. So now let's let's, uh, imagine a triangle, and the triangle consists of the rule of law, democracy, fundamental rights. It is given in the primary law that the institutions, when applying the EU law, have to stick to these three values. It is also given in the primary law that the member states, when they are applying EU law have to stick to these values. The problem for the EU is what is happening if the member states violate values of democracy, rule law, and fundamental rights when applying their national policies which are not covered by the EU law. So let's say elections, uh, dispersion of power between different constitutional actors, we are cutting down the powers of the constitutional court, we are adding more power to the governing coalition, we are packing the courts with other people, but this is all standing outside of the scope of the EU law. So in a very technical interpretation of the treaties, there is very little the institutions can actually do about it. So the whole argument, which is happening right now inside of the European Union and on the theoretical level uh, in the EU, EU law, is better, is it working? it's working. Oh my goodness, amazing. <laughs> Amazing. The by this crazy, so I think if you, yeah, exactly, with the space, yeah. you should be able to. This is what I was trying to <laughs> Show me my hands. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. Oh, and you're imagining you, you <laughs> you something very different, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so, so here I was talking about that, that we have some provisions in the primary law that this is how the institutions have to behave. So the dark triangle is always the EU law. And we know that they have to behave, and we can punish them if they don't. And we know that member states, when they are applying EU law, have to behave in a certain way and we can punish them if they don't. <coughs> but the problem is that the political systems are broader and national policies are broader. And if the states are going outside of the EU law, here in the huge triangle, there is very little the articles, the, the articles of the treaty can do about it and the like, regular mechanisms we have. So the question now is what are the elections? What is the change of the constitution? Does it mean that if the Article 2 says that only country which is democratic might be the member of the EU and the country is violating elections and it's not actually providing for fair election, that is violating Article 2 or not? So this is what the like, theoretical scholarship or, or branch of academia is talking about and they, that's why it's so problematic for EU to tackle actually the crisis. But the institutions are trying to come up with the answers and we will look now at what the answers to these questions are. Uh, so as I said before, we have uh, let me just yeah. So we have uh, <coughs> several different measures inside of the EU law. I will just name them. First, we have the sanction mechanism in the Article 7. As I said, if the state violates uh, core values, if if the state applying the EU law violates the core values, it can be sanctioned by Article 7. The membership can be stopped and or it can face some some financial sanctions. We have certain monitoring mechanisms. We have uh, evaluation reports when the country is acceding to the EU, and you might know that in the case of, of uh, uh, Romania and Bulgaria, that actually there is a continuation. The European Commission did not stop the monitoring after the successful entry, and we have it's called uh, CDM, the CDM, uh, yeah, the monitoring uh, control and monitoring mechanism. So there is some like additional layer of protection, and then there are certain. Uh, obviously there some networking is happening, the states learn from each other because they are in contact. This is all what the political sciences are considering as the forms of democratization. In terms of legal instruments, we don't have many of the legal instruments. We have the infringement procedures which can be very, very effective, but they only cover again the application of the EU law, <coughs> which has nothing to do with the, uh, with the democracy. But in, in terms of uh, modalities or modes of democratization, what is interesting is to look how active individual institutions are. So what uh, <coughs> what individual actors who were writing about the democratization were, were saying they were usually looking whether the EU is actively pursuing democratization that the aim is to democratize the country it was happening directly or indirectly as the ending process of some other, other mechanisms and policies and whether it was happening due to the influence of the EU as such or due to the interaction between the states. So if you look at it again, uh, in Article 7 you would have direct influence because the, the reason is to actually really push countries to be more democratic and commission and councils usually do that. Parliament, sometimes with resolutions. <clears throat> the same goes for Copenhagen criteria, but they are not really controlling the country and imposing the country, you have to do this, but they are conditioning it. If you don't do it, we will cut your finances in the agricultural se- or sector or something like that. Uh, a clear example of conditionality is obviously the anti-conditionality. If you do not stick with these 11 points we raised, you will not enter the EU. Uh, so it's not controlling terms, that they, they will basically do it of the country. Uh, Then there is certain assistance, sometimes the institutions link different topics together and it indirectly again leads to a a result they want to to have. Uh, Monitoring and networking usually happens Uh, also, so what I meant here when I put it into the passive and like closer to the states is that (coughs) sometimes states can actually report on what's happening in different states, they can initiate different procedures. Uh, uh, before the CJEU, and so on and so forth, and obviously leaders talk to each other, they meet, uh, and that's also an important way how the how the ideas are are spread and shared. Um, so so yeah, just different measures are let's say <clears throat> there is different strength with different measures, uh, political and legal European institutions have at hand, and here is just to look. Uh, so, so we are talking still about the same set of issues I was mentioning, and the idea just to, to have a look which, sorry, this is too close to me, uh, which institutions have uh, capacity to act. So you can see that Commission has quite wide discretion in many of these measures I mentioned. Uh, <clears throat> the Court of Justice so far can only be active in the infringement. Uh, the What is interesting here is domestic courts. We didn't count with domestic courts being able to do anything about democratic or constitutional crisis. But what is happening right now, and I will talk about it a little bit later, is that uh, domestic courts started to um, assert certain pressure through the mutual trust principle. Again, for those of you who do not know the EU law that well, uh, so we have the free movement of judgments inside of the European Union. The free movement of judgment is conditioned by the mutual trust. We trust that the courts delivering the judgment are fair. We don't check whether the courts are fair, we just trust them and we will execute the judgment in the different country. The procedure, thanks to this, is very, very fast. What what some national courts in the European Union started to do right now, was that they they are uh, raising uh, preliminary questions to the CJEU whether really they can execute the judgments of Polish courts when it is set by the Venice Commission and UN different UN NGOs and and, uh, committees that Polish, that we don't have uh, any more independent judiciary in Poland. So this might be actually an interesting uh, measure for future. But now let's talk about what was really happening uh, in those four cases I I mentioned. First, I will briefly go through uh, what really happened in the crisis and then how the institutions reacted. So as I said, uh, Austria was the very first uh, instance. It was very interesting because basically nothing happened. It was only that Hydro was elected. He he ended up being the second leader of the OVP, uh, OVP party. Um, he was in the coalition, but the controversy was only about um, regarding his past uh, speeches and his past ideas. He didn't do anything non-democratic, so it was very difficult to tackle, uh, to somehow cover it uh, under the European Union law. He, he had some uh, anti-immigration, anti-minorities uh, yeah, sentiments he, he was uh, publishing before. but. In the 2000s, he became more or less mainstream in order to actually gain bigger political capital. Still, EU leaders were very, very unhappy about having Hydro in the in the policies, and they actually managed to push him out. And I will talk about it later. But it was definitely not in the scope of the EU because really nothing happened. It was just the like rhetoric of the of the leader of the party before. Um, uh, Romania. Uh, was the case when there were some struggles and uh, power struggles between the Prime Minister and President. <coughs> Victor Ponta very much wanted to get rid of President who was quite <coughs> powerful. Uh, they had a conflict on the, about the interpretation of the competencies which ended up at the Constitutional Court. Um, the Prime Minister attempted impeachment And he also pushed for a change of the Constitution to have the impeachment to achieve it in an easier way. The Constitutional Court said it was not in line with the Constitution, but the Prime Minister refused to actually accept it. So that was more or less straightforward. Um, Hungary and Poland are much, much more complicated cases. And there are actually, yeah, you can see it in a big table there are several instances of the constitutional values uh, being uh, violated. So first of all, in Hungary, again, you might know that Viktor Orbán got constitutional majority. So the first thing he did he, was that he, che- he actually adopted a new constitution. The constitution as such, that's interesting, if you compare it with different, if you compare the different controversial part, parts of the constitution with different world constitutions, you can find similar, um, similar uh, provisions <laughs> All around the world, the problem is that the package taking together as such was very clearly leading to more powers for the for the current government government and somehow securing their position in the policy. Uh, what they did was court packing. That was probably <clears throat> the biggest issue that they actually managed to somehow get the high court presidents and the supreme court presidents nominated by the ruling government in a very very shady way. Uh, they also basically established completely new new uh, Supreme Court just by officially changing the name of the institution. They basically uh, um, or, or officially in the in the legal provision it, it was only explained that the name of the institution will change, but they re-elected the whole like ensemble of the judges. Um, the independence of the media. Independence of the National Central Bank and personal data authority, everything was tackled a little bit with by getting people who were in line with governmental policy to them, leading positions. <coughs> uh, and then uh, Hungary was also criticized for some changes regarding the position of minorities in the country or the minorities living in uh, other countries um, uh, outside of Hungary. Poland is quite similar. Again, the judiciary was the main target of the ruling government. Compared to Hungary though, uh, Kaczynski in Poland didn't have the constitutional majority, so he couldn't actually change the constitution. So that's why, although quite similar changes, again targeting the judiciary, court packing, changing the presidents, uh, not accepting the judgment of the constitutional court, not publishing the judgment of the constitutional court, All measures were quite similar, but not done via the constitutional amendments because he didn't have the the majority. So he did it basically outside of the scope of law. And then that's why basically Polish changes somehow seem to be harsher and more like directly in violation of the the rule of law principles. But more or less as you can see the same thing when things were happening. And now the question is how the EU institutions actually reacted to this. Um, <coughs> regarding the, the Austria, as I said, there was not much that could have been done about the situation because it was only the speeches still, <coughs> uh, member states were quite active and they, they actually went completely outside of the scope of the EU law. Just the leaders of the main uh, member states met, uh, I think they were led by uh, by Germany, uh, they agreed in 24 hours on three types of sanctions against Austria, to actually, they actually stopped any sort of de- diplomatic relationships with Aust- Austria, and they forced the government to actually reconsider the construction and pushed Hydra outside of, of the coalition. The activity, this outside of- the- scope activity <coughs> of Member States was supported by both European Parliament and the Commission. But Article 7 was not raised. Parliament considered for for a bit to actually issue a resolution about the Article 7 that it might be used officially against the country, but it was not. Uh, In Romania, uh, it seemed that European Union actually managed to do uh, a lot at the beginning because it was using the CBN mechanism, I talked about it before. So it didn't really try to to use uh, different mechanisms. Because the CVM mechanism was the was the way how to pres- put pressure on Romania and stop certain so stop the uh, flow of the finances. They had already some uh, me- uh, monitoring mechanism. Um, <coughs> the when I was checking the, the European Commission was raising uh, eleven different conditions what the country has to do, and the monitoring is continuing in uh, Hungary. Uh, this was uh, obviously more complicated as the the crisis as such was more complicated as well. So first of all the European Commission after unsuccessful talks started several infringement procedures. The problem with this infringement procedure is that they are not really tackling the root of the case just some technical aspects. Like for example one of the strategies how the government tried to get rid of the judges was that they Shortened them oh i'm sorry, my voice is completely out. <laughs> they tried to shorten the retirement age of the judges <coughs> which which was considered to be uh, discriminatory, so these were the infringement procedures oh. and uh, these were successful, but these were only like some <clears throat> minor, minor things the Commission could have done via the, the infringement proceedings. Thank you. <laughs> so that would be. Yeah, it's a difficult topic, you know. <laughs> um, so, uh, and there were three different infringement procedures. All of those were successful, but all of those were not really getting to the root of the problem. They were not really getting to the point that the the government should not really tinker uh, with, the, with the competencies of different constitutional actors. The, those, that was only like the technical layer lying above everything. Uh, the CJEU did not use the terms democracy, democratic crisis, constitutional crisis at all. It seems that the court was not willing to be somehow dragged into the political struggle. Um, also, Article 7 was discussed, but it was considered to be extremely controversial. It was called in this case, in the Hungarian case in 2012, the atomic choice or atomic option. Because obviously you are, you are a community of member states and then you say about one of those member states that you are outside of the group because you are violating our rules of the game. Uh, so it seemed to the institutions that this is too harsh an option, that we need more steps before we actually say that somebody is so, so clearly violating the rules of the game. <laughs> so in the end, Although the commission was quite harsh, the, any resolutions uh, actually stated that there is clear violation the Article 7 and the harsh sanction should follow what was not, uh, not adopted. But the commission came with a new mechanism which somehow is preceding the use of the Article 7 and the mechanism is based, based on the um, elaborate monitoring of the processes happening in the country. The problem is that the commission, the institutions among themselves, cannot really agree what to do, and this new mechanism, <clears throat> the rule of law framework, was also contradicted by the European Council's activities in the field. So, so basically, both the Commission and the Councils developed different mechanisms and different in- instruments how to approach the crisis, and it's counterproductive because no one knows really what's the the stronger uh, option, and. Uh, the Polish case, obviously, is not done. Everything is only basically starting on the EU level, but we have some we have some infringement procedures already. Mm. Again, tackling only uh, discriminatory um, <coughs> level, it's very similar to the Polish one. Again, retirement age. Um, we have resolutions of the European Parliament and Commission. The Commission actually stated that Article 7 should be used, uh, and we are waiting on the on the European Parliament. And then the big question would be what the what the Council will do. Whether the Council will actually stick with the institutions or protect national interests, and whether some uh, other other states have uh, different uh, uh, interests there. EU is a little bit more worried in case of Poland because obviously it's a second country. Now they have allies, Orban has ally in, in Kaczynski. And again, and also it's a big country. So you, you might know that Poland uh, is securing quite a huge chunk of the seats in the European Parliament. So it's more important for the EU to actually secure that this country is behaving in the way it wants it to behave. Uh, the most interesting thing we will probably I'll see in, in few weeks is the preliminary question which was raised and I mentioned it already that one of the, the, it was at the Irish High Court which asked actually the CJEU whether it can execute Polish judgments or not. It seems to be a little bit too much if you when you read the preliminary questions, but it might actually push the Court of Justice to say at least something about the processes happening in Poland. Because so far the Court of Justice was really, if you read all the infringement, even the, the opinions and the judgment, it is very, very technical and very, uh, uh, yeah, very just very much just walking around what is what is happening there, which is understandable of course, but still it will be interesting. Uh, so so far it seems that the conditionality was the most actually effective measure now the institutions are trying to be perceived that we can do something with the control we have more in the control we have the rule of law mechanisms which is the mechanism preceding the use of the article 7 we will make it happen the problem with all this is, is that if you list actually the crisis and the four instances happening there there is something similar going on, and to me it seems that somehow the institutions. Un- so, so the problem with Hungary was that talking about the country not being democratic in terms of the Article 7 was very controversial. So they started using this rule of law rhetoric and saying, yeah, you know, you have a problem with the ju- with, with judges and with court, and you shouldn't be behaving this way. It's all very technical, and and no one really cares about the rule of law being protected in terms of the po- in the policy level all that much. Um, The problem is that with the rule of law framework and the activities of Commission right now, again, only one chunk of what is happening in this constitutional crisis is being covered. Now, if we we have uh, a government which is trying to uh, proceed with the court packing, the government which is trying to change uh, arbitrarily the presidents of the courts, we know that this is against the Commission's rule of law framework. But once the government will try to actually attack different constitutional actors, not only the judiciary, and it's easy to say that judiciary is covered by the European Union law because sometimes, somehow you are getting, you know, the courts are applying the EU law. So obviously the courts need to be protected by the EU law. But what if the elections are not fair? What if there are some other constitutional changes and they're very, it's just that no one pays attention to what was happening outside of the judiciary. So what I was trying to say is that Part of the crisis which tackled the judiciary uh, seemed to be somehow less controversial and it was very easy for the institutions to just take this crisis and build a whole new steps on their basis. But my fear is that they won't be able to use these steps and these frameworks they are developing to cover the whole actually issue and, and the whole area of what is happening inside of the countries. Uh, Obviously this is an ongoing research, it's only my drafty draft and my first ideas when I was looking at how the institutions behave so I'll be very happy for any sort of questions or input or feedback you you might be having to that topic. So thank you very much.